Good morning. Join me now on this Sunday as we pray for grace and peace. Our God of everlasting peace, each beautiful day that you have created greets us joyfully like a father running to embrace his long lost son. Each day with you is a new beginning, bringing new revelations. Every day we learn more of you, deepen our relationship with you, and discover through listening to your teaching how to live in the world you created as your instruments, living out the grace that has transformed us, embodying and reciprocating your peace, which makes earth start to look more like heaven. Each day brings new opportunity for us to discover you anew and watch you as you create your new heaven and new earth through your servants. On this day, we seek the new beginning Christ has set before us. As your servants lead us in building your kingdom, show us where we can help, what we can do. As you empower us to act, we bring and grant every gift that we have as leaders, as helpers, as listeners to meet your calling for us. Guide our hands, feet, words, and actions to your will. We seek your instruction and find you, longing to be changed forever by your sacrifice and your boundless grace to live in that kingdom of peace you have envisioned for us. We pray that we can give all that we have to bring about all that your plan purposes for your kingdom of glory. We are ready to be changed into sculptors, painters, architects, working with the medium of this world to paint peace and paint your grace using the love that you have shown us. Walk with us on paths of justice to transform all that we see work within us, and use our lives as your canvas to paint your portrait of love, grace, and peace. Melt us, mold us, fill us, and use us, pouring out your spirit on all that we do. It is in your name we pray. Amen.
so grateful to see you here uh, and in many ways as I look around I see uh, so many faces I long even now to stop and point out and welcome um, don't don't run too quickly from this place when the service is concluded I'd like to greet you just as much as you seem to delight in greeting one another in the interim before I arrived uh, the dean of the Campbell Divinity School, Andrew Wakefield, was the, uh, was the interim pastor here. And he noted how readily this congregation seemed to linger after worship. That, and if you sit with enough congregations, you see some just poof, straight to the door. Maybe it's to get in line at the buffet. Maybe it's just to get home. Maybe there are other things to do. But this congregation has always kind of embedded itself more and more deeply in the relationships that are formed 
and that's part of what it means to be a church, cultivating those relationships. And as one who has now served several congregations, I've come to realize that no matter where I might be, there's a part of me that always resides where I have been. Maybe this for you is the church you grew up in or a previous congregation uh, where you held membership, where you served, where you formed relationships. Our New Testament in the Bible is filled with letters. It's not the only genre of literature in the New Testament, but it's certainly a prominent one, many of which were written by the Apostle Paul, who, in founding or in participating in the establishment of a congregation, never could quite leave them behind. Sometimes they would reach out to him asking for counsel. Sometimes he would reach out to them out of genuine pastoral concern for their well-being. In this season after Christmas, before we make that hard turn in the season of Lent toward Easter, there is a time for us to reflect on what is called the epiphany. That is the unveiling and manifestation of who Jesus is in the world. And as we come to know who Jesus is, we come to know who we are. And so I wanted to focus on, on that project in a different sort of way. Rather than reading the traditional scriptures that are assigned to this, I thought one of the ways that we could connect both with the identity and the work and person of Jesus in the world and how that interfaces the identity and person and work of a congregation is to read one of these letters. And one of my favorite letters in the New Testament is the letter to the Philippians. And I could spend the balance of this time just talking about the cool history and all of the things that brought this letter to us. But instead, I'd like for us to focus as we walk systematically through the first couple of chapters of the letter to the Philippians on what it has to say to us about those two kind of key questions. Who is Jesus? And who are we in him as a church? And as those who carry an, the name of and identify as Christians, as little Christs. Best place to start is at the beginning. And here, at the beginning of the new year, we might get just a little bit of insight into the best way to begin anything new. So here, these first two verses from chapter 1 of the letter to the Philippians. Paul and Timothy servants of Christ Jesus to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi together with the overseers and the deacons grace and peace to you from God our Father and to the Lord Jesus Christ may God bless the reading and the hearing of the word well as I was saying we could spend a lot of time in all that's embedded in just those first few verses there's so many interesting features about the way the Apostle Paul begins that letter to a beloved church in Philippi he assigns a different sort of title to himself sometimes when he would write letters they always begin with the writer of the letter we usually put it at the end but they would you know they were scrolls and things like that so you needed to know right up front who was writing and so very often he would call himself you know Paul an apostle 
and somehow try and make sure people knew his rank or his status or his authority to write this letter. But here he begins with a much humbler title, a servant, literally a slave of the Lord Jesus. And with that gesture of humility on his part and the part of his ministry partner, the Timothy, he addresses the church. The saints, he calls them in Philippi. Saints, of course, does not necessarily indicate that they're going to have a hospital named after them or anything like that. Uh, but instead, this is a way of talking about those who have been set apart and those who have been made holy by God. Not because of what they have done, but because they are in a million-dollar Pauline phrase, they are in Christ Jesus. And it's not just those who are in the congregation, but it is everyone somewhere in that organization, those who are gifted and tasked with overseeing the life of the congregation, those who are gifted and tasked with special ministry tasks as deacons, and those who are not yet put into that same sort of service. There is no hierarchy. All of them are caught together in this one body, the body of Christ. And Paul addresses them all. And from the outset, he gives them two words of blessing, words that I want us to focus on today because they carry across time and across space to our lives as well. They are as old as the Bible. And they are as fresh and new for us as every single sunrise. Grace and peace. Sung so beautifully by our ensemble today. Two words that in many ways provide the backdrop or the foundation of who we are as a congregation and who we are as believers. Grace and peace. One commentator said that what Paul was doing here was kind of interesting, that grace, he said, is this million-dollar New Testament word, and peace, in its Hebrew form, shalom, is a million-dollar Old Testament word that are now merged together, this historical connection to the God of Israel and the new thing of grace that God has done in Jesus Christ. And I think he's wrong. I think he's wrong. And the reason I want to say that he's wrong is somehow we tend to uh, imagine that life with God has somehow developed or evolved out of a rigorous, ungracious life with God to something new in Jesus Christ. But what I'd like for us to do in the first half of our time together is just walk through what we call the Old Testament, the life of the people of Israel with God, the Bible that Jesus read, and hear how the word grace and how the grace of God is made manifest and provides everything that we would need to know to understand that claim of Christians that in Jesus, the grace of God is made alive in our world with flesh and with blood. One of the great refrains of Old Testament language, when it ponders the mystery of who God is, is talking about God as being compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast or loyal love. And that statement, gracious, 
is part of a Hebrew word family that we translate as grace or favor. And it has an amazing story to tell. At the superficial level, when that word that we translate grace is used, sometimes it's used to talk, like in the Psalms, for instance, about the amazing way some people can string words together. Psalm 45, 2, when it talks about really clever and well-crafted worship words, and the speakers of those words say they have lips that are anointed with grace. These are beautifully crafted words that bring delight, sometimes to people, sometimes to God, I suppose. When this word is used, sometimes it was used, for instance, in the Proverbs, to talk about the, the beauty of a mother's instruction or of a father's instruction. In Proverbs 1.9, it's likened to a dazzling piece of jewelry, a beautifully crafted tiara, a garland of grace, it's called. It's a beautiful thing. Grace means it's a beautiful thing. It attracts attention. It attracts favor. And that's why when we talk about grace, we talk about it whenever it describes a gift that is met with delight, that's met with favor. How did this play out between people? Well, when Esther went to the king of Persia, for instance, and she asks to be spared, not just her, but all of her people would be spared from Haman's uh, genocidal plot. In Esther chapter 8, verse 3, usually we translate it, she went and she begged. Or she went and she implored. But literally, it's that same word. She requests grace. And the scriptures tell us that because the king delights in Esther, he favors her and grants her her wish. And so we can hear how at one level, grace is grace because it's motivated by delight. And it comes as a gift. But there's another dimension to grace too that we can probably already also understand grace is showing favor to someone, yes, who deserves something that's very different than what they actually receive. Think of another story. To hold against Queen Esther's delight and favor before the king. Think about Jacob. Jacob cheated his brother Esau out of his birthright. He runs away in cowardly fashion, and then after a couple of decades decides he wants to try and go make things right with Esau. And so in Genesis 38, uh, excuse me, 33, verse 8, as he's making his way back to his brother, he sends his family ahead of him. He sends flocks and flocks ahead of him, uh, maybe to bribe his brother into just sort of softening his angry heart a little bit. Um, maybe they were human shields so that if Esau was really righteously raging and indignant, that they would bear the brunt of his wrath? We don't know exactly, but by the time we get to verse 8 of chapter 33, Esau asks his brother, why have I seen so many flocks precede you? And Jacob explains that it's so he might find grace in his brother's eyes. Jacob is not asking for something fair. He's not even asking for favor. But surprisingly, Esau grants him 
release, pardon, forgiveness. Esau chooses to delight in his brother Jacob. He chooses to show Jacob grace, and deserve has nothing to do with it in this story. So when we're talking about grace, we realize that it's really the product of a very generous spirit. And some people have that. Some people don't, as you know. And perhaps most of us know that we're sometimes, yes, and sometimes no about such things. But the Bible tells us that there is one who shows more grace than anyone else, and that one is God. And God's people knew that from the very beginning of their relationship with God. God, after delivering the Israelites out of Egypt, quickly betray God by offering their loyalty, worshiping a golden idol instead. And God is incensed. But Moses steps in and asks God to consider giving them a gift that they do not deserve. This is how it reads. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, that word grace, I and your people, unless you go with us. And God says yes. God forgives the people. And God promises to go with these people. Over and over again, when people worship God in the Psalms, they cry out dozens and dozens of times. We find it in the Psalms. They cry out to God for grace when they're sick or when they're in danger or when they're in exile. And when the prophets speak about God, as the people are in exile, they boldly declare that God is going to show grace to the people by delivering them and delivering all of creation from death and ruin. Isaiah chapter 30 says, People of Zion who live in Jerusalem, you will weep no more. How gracious God will be when you cry for help. As soon as the Lord hears, God will answer you. And so I hope once and for all we can dispense with that caricature that somehow the God of the Old Testament is just some sort of mean and, and cranky figure and that the God of the New Testament is some sort of sugar and spice and everything nice sort of experience. Because when the authors of the New Testament sought to share what God had done in Jesus, they called it grace. And they knew what that word meant. And they knew all that it contained. The Greek word is literally gift. Sometimes it means thanks. But this is how John said it. The word became flesh and made a dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of, say it with me, grace and truth. Jesus is the unmerited gift of the generous God that the people had been worshiping and looking to for so long. But now that grace had taken on flesh, had lived lives with us, had, had died our death with us and for us. And there was more. As the Apostle Paul began to share this good news of what God has done in Jesus. 
he talks about our life on this earth, as one commentator said, like we are the living dead. That God had handed humankind over to all the destructive consequences of our selfishness and our sin. And Paul says that God is rich in mercy. And by God's grace, God rescues us in Jesus' life and in his death and in his resurrection. And it is there that a generous gift of life, more powerful than death, is found. And as with any gift, all you have to do is receive it. And so grace becomes the central feature of coming to know Jesus and coming to know who we are in Jesus. That great biblical description of God as gracious is so thoroughgoing at this point we can assume that God is gracious, but we can never, ever take it for granted. It calls on us to be willing to own our own failures and to ask for God's grace. And we found that God is consistent and generous in God's response. God gives us God's own life. God gives us God's own self. And this is what it means to offer grace. So when the apostle offers a blessing of grace to the congregation, it means much. It provides the very backdrop of who they would understand Jesus to be and how their life in him would be shaped. It would be a life of grace, of receiving gifts freely given and offering that same grace to others. And yoked to this word is another word, peace. Instead of looking now deep into the text of the Bible, I would like for us to look in the story of our own lives. Because peace is precious. And it's difficult to locate. Peace can mean different things to different people, of course. What does peace mean to a soldier or to a police officer? What does police, uh, peace mean to a prisoner? What does peace mean to that mother who is unable to string more than just a couple of hours together of sleep at any point in time? That infant is always calling out for something. What does peace mean to a child whose parents won't stop fighting? It usually means the end of something, the end of a war or of crime, the end of incarceration, the end of the non-stop relentless colicky crying, or the end of heart-wrenching disputes. But at best, those sorts of cessations are temporary. We know wars break out again. That babies will cry again. We know relationships come under strain and stress again. And so when we talk about the peace that is brought by the one who embodies the grace of God. This peace of Jesus is something that's personal and more permanent than that. It begins with a peace that's made between a self-absorbed and willful people like you and me and God. Peace becomes part of the lives of those who embrace that truth 
that's embedded in Danny's favorite Christmas carol, God and Sinners Reconciled. That's how Paul told the Romans about it. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then later on, explains to the Romans, if it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And so there is a connection between the peace that God forms with us and the peace that we can share with one another. I've known some people who really thrive on conflict, who seem to relish in stirring the pot, who love to provoke. And if you don't know who that person is in your life, you might want to look in the mirror. It might be you. However, all of us at some point in time find ourselves embedded in or aligned with people who are filled with self-centered interests. And they talk more about themselves and take for themselves what might belong to somebody else. It's wishful thinking to think that once we know Jesus, we will never be caught up in that sort of relational tangle ever again. But in Christ, we do have the ability to do something new. And that is both to discern the lack of peace when it exists and to step away from participating in that kind of relational or physical violence. If we're at peace with God, we cultivate a peace within ourselves. And it's remarkable how much we are then ready to cultivate peace with one another. That if peace with God really has a shaping, informative impact on our lives, our willingness and our capacity to share a relational peace grows. Sometimes when we think about life with Jesus, we focus only on receiving the good news and placing our lives against that promise of eternal and abundant life with God. And that is an amazing gift. It is an amazing promise and hope for us, but it is not all of life with Christ. This peace that saturates our lives, that God forges with us, speaks into our own pasts and into our present and into our future. So let's take a quick look back, shall we? Is there anything in your past that still causes you shame or embarrassment or guilt? Open your ears. Is there anything in your past that brings you sadness or grief or loneliness? Maybe you can hear some good news now. If there's anything in your past that brings you regret, maybe things you've done or said or haven't done or haven't said that hurt people that you love or you recognize have done injury to someone else, then quiet your heart long enough to listen to what peace might bring to you. Psalm 103, from uh, which we sang an excerpt, excerpt from this morning, in that 10,000 Reasons song, says this, As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is God's love for those who fear God. As far as the east 
is from the west. So far has the Lord removed our transgressions from us. When we talk about grace, and we talk about peace, one of the great awarenesses that can grow in our lives is that from God's point of view, the slate is wiped clean. All things are made new. And so as you look at your own life, maybe as you leave here this week and you take a few moments, you jot these things down in your, in your journal or on a little piece of paper, you can write down some of those regrets, some of those shames that you carry forward from the past. And as you pray, you can turn to that psalm, Psalm 103, or maybe Isaiah chapter 1. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Ask God how those words speak into your life, into what it is you have written down. If God removes it as a barrier to your future, what will it take for you to set it down? For many of us, it means in some way going to that person or that circumstance where we wronged and in some way offer our amends. If nothing else, it means learning what we need to learn and moving forward in an entirely different way. And as important as that ongoing activity in our relationships and our lives is required toward reconciliation from the point of view of God, it no longer resembles a sort of ball and chain that we must carry with us. But instead, God is opening up to us a different future because God has, in forgiveness, offered us peace with our past. And this is good news. What about our present? When Jesus was preparing his disciples for that time of his own crucifixion, when he was going to be gone from their sight, he said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I don't give as the world gives. Don't let your hearts be troubled and don't let them be afraid. The world offers us all kinds of solutions for peace in the present moment. We're bombarded with advertisements that promise us we'll know peace if we just purchase the right products, the right pill, the right diet plan right at the new year. Have you noticed your Facebook feed and everything? It's like, you know, P90X, buy, get your bikini body by spring break, all the rest. Um, You'll find peace. If you just follow our plan or lose 20 pounds, we're bombarded by the kind of peace that the world offers, and all of which, again, is temporary. Maybe we think that peace is somehow going to keep us out of trials and troubles, that peace is going to mean the absence of pain or suffering or heartache, but that isn't what it means. It isn't possible to sustain that kind of peace because life always happens and we are not called out of this world on my front porch on one of the columns there's a bird that's built a nest it's empty right now because it's too cold um, and in the spring i remember noting there was a bird in there and she i knew it was a she because she was sitting on eggs sort of lovingly keeping things warm and now having birds on your porch and my porch needs to be painted but it doesn't need to be painted the way the birds tend to paint it. 
but I have resisted the urge to remove the, the nest. It's a beautiful picture. And I remember one time, particularly blustery and stormy day, going out there, and as the wind was whipping around and the trees were bending a little bit and there was a driving rain and all of that, that mother would not move. There in the midst of the chaos, there was love that anchored her to those things that she loved and she protected. And I thought of Psalm 91 in that moment. Under the Lord's wings, we will find our refuge. God's faithfulness is a shield. Jesus, when he lamented the, the travails of Jerusalem, said, how I long for you to come to me like a mother hen, you know, gathers her chickens. It's, it's a picture of peace in the storm. It's a picture of peace in the chaos. It's not the absence of the turmoil. It is the presence of an abiding love. And that's what Jesus promises them and us. That we can have clear heads and more peaceful hearts in the midst of the chaos because I know in my life there resides one with an unfailing love. That comes as peace. And lastly, for the future, this is for you anxiety-prone out there. And I know there are a lot of you. It's a rising mental health diagnosis in our modern day, but I'm not sure that it's anything new because life is hard. And it's hard to maintain your optimism when you're in some way formed by the hard experiences of the present. How many of you go there really quickly? And by there, I mean asking those questions. What if my child dies? What if my business goes under? What if I lose my health? What if my, my spouse and I can't reconcile? What if something unspeakable and unforeseeable happens in my life? Because the reason we hang on to these thoughts is we know at one level they could come to pass. Statistics be darned. We know it could happen to us. And sometimes those things that we fear worst have nothing that we can really do to prevent them. And so we don't sleep as well, our health suffers, our joy suffers, our peace of mind, it all suffers. Can you think of a time when your anxieties about the future destroy the peace, as fragile as it was, that you carried in the present? It happens. And just sort of like when I first started talking about peace, from Jesus' time until today, there's never been a single day on this planet where there wasn't a war going on someplace where human cruelty, disregard, injustice, and prejudice wasn't manifest. And I have said off and on with my clergy colleagues, I would give so much for just one day not to get one more report from my own congregation. Can we just declare a moratorium on sickness or injury or accidents or anything else? Can we just have one day where people aren't struggling? The world is a dangerous place. So what do we have? We have peace in the assurance of Jesus, the embodiment of God's own grace, 
a little later after he assured them of this peace, he says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace in this world. You will have trouble, but take heart, take courage. I have overcome the world. And so hardships, large and small, they have, they do, and they will come to us. But that which does not change is the promise that is embedded in this blessing that our Savior is alive and loose in this world and in our church and in your life and in mine, grace and peace to you. This day, every day. And it's not a wish. It's a promise. Amen.